Hello, students of writing, teachers of writing, college-trained writers, and self-taught writers. I'm Grant Faulkner, and I'm here with my very learned co-host, Brooke Warner, who has been known to teach a thing or two about being a successful writer in her writing courses. And Brooke, I'm focused on the teaching of writing today because our guest is Lisa Stringfellow, who has a debut middle-grade fantasy novel, A Comb of Wishes, that just came out. And Lisa is also a teacher, and she just happens to teach NaNoWriMo to her fifth grade students. So she's that rare and wonderful breed, a writer who drafted her novel during NaNoWriMo while writing along with her students. And Lisa made me think of this age-old and kind of weird and disturbing question that's often bandied about, can writing be taught? And I realized we've never taken the question on, on Right Minded, even though it's a, a pervasive question that has been around the writing community for generations uh, since the writing began to be taught, in fact. And I think the very asking of the question presumes it can't be taught. But I wonder why this same question doesn't tend to be asked of, say, ballet dancers or visual artists or actors. You know, what is it about teaching writing that people question? It's such a good question, Grant. And, you know, yes, obviously, I teach memoir. um, And so a lot of things come to mind. I mean, I think one of the problems is that teachers have very different pieces of advice and ways of teaching, which is perhaps unlike ballet or visual art, you know, where it's like, this is our methodology. And in teaching, there are all kinds of different methodologies that are probably unique to the teachers themselves or the course or whatever. Um, and I think that can be confusing to writers. You know, I'll, I'll sometimes teach something and then a student will come back to me and say, the, you know, the exact thing you told me not to do is in some best-selling author's book. <laughs> that happens a lot, actually. And And so then MFA programs also in general, like we've talked about this so much, you know, it's like, yes, there's value in MFA programs. And at the same time, I've seen so many students come out that just didn't learn the craft of writing. I don't know what is going on there. Um, They seem to be doing a good job of teaching critique and maybe how to grow (laughs) a thick skin. (laughs) But, you know, but they're selling false promises of future success. And they're certainly not preparing students well enough for uh, the business of writing. So that's a part about MFAs. Uh, For me, you know, I really think the best way to learn to write is to read. I mean, it's just so obvious, but so many of the best self-taught writers that are out there are just incredibly well-read human beings. Um, And at the end of the day, writing is creative expression. And so the parameters and general rules and ideas can be taught, but there's so much room for interpretation and there's so much room even for rule breaking. But I always maintain that you shouldn't interpret too much or break the rules too much until you have a firm handle on the fundamentals. So does that all make sense or resonate with you? Yeah, I love uh, both learning the supposed writing rules and and breaking them. So I think it's <laughs> a, it, it's it's yeah. really good to practice both. And even though college writing programs and majors are a recent thing, you know, writers uh, have been mentored and taught by others throughout history. You know, I was just thinking like Sherwood Anderson mentored William Faulkner and Gertrude Stein taught Ernest Hemingway a lot. And I recently read an essay about how the novelist Angela Flournoy uh, learned how to imagine characters and experiences alien to her from Zora Neale Hurston. And she learned by reading Zora Neale Hurston, which is one way people learn to write in the classroom as well, by learning from examples of other writers or their mentor 
write texts, as uh, as Lisa says. So the question of whether writing can be taught for me morphs into the question of why we are so distracted by the question of writing's teachability. You know, is it just that it's somehow flattering to feel that your writing is more gift than labor? You know, it's it's kind of an American solo hero kind of idea that you're so infused by the muse, such a special prodigy that your skill and talent can't possibly have been nurtured by a teacher or fellow <laughs> students. God forbid. You're so special. Uh, it's a very American cowboy way of thinking. It's so funny, you know, because you're coming at it, I think, as, you know, as a, as a writer and having been in an MFA program and like I'm thinking about that through the lens of being a teacher. And the same is true in the teaching space. You know, there's just a mm. lot of exceptionalism, you know, like, well, I'm an exceptional teacher because I'm a best-selling author, you know, or I'm exceptional because I teach at, you know, this or that university. So I think there's just a lot about the writing world that is very rarefied in a sense, you know, and that uh, there's a, such a hierarchy in the writing world, you know, like for instance, I teach memoir, but I've never written a memoir myself. Uh, at this point, I've been doing it for so long that I think I've earned my stripes, but early on I would hear things like that. Well, you haven't written a memoir, so how do you know, mm. you know? And, and so it's just interesting. And those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about when I'm listening to you. And, and there are people of course, all over the place who need a lot of ego gratification, you know, whether they're teachers or writers. Um, you know, there are those who are teaching or writing to be self-promotional. You know, there's just so many different things going on in the world and so many writers. And it can be super hard these days just to focus on teaching writing because there's such a tremendous pressure to write your own books. Um, and then there are so many students, right? And just different kinds of students. So some of those students are going to gravitate toward classes because that's what they like and they learn in that environment. And others are going to be self-taught. And, you know, obviously no single or specific journey can guarantee an outcome, right? Which is like wh probably why we focus on writing's teachability because you're always going to hear exceptions <laughs> to every mm -hmm. story or every piece of advice. And, you know, it's probably some kind of Gordian knot of a topic because there's just no answer. Yeah. I liked when you used the word rarefied. I think that that is a sensibility that is kind of the foundation of this very question. And it's, it's fashionable to dis that rarefied, I think attitude <laughs> makes it fashionable to, to dismiss MFAs as, you know, just this kind of formulaic type of writing and that they produce cookie cutter fiction. Um, but, you know, when I think about, you know, what goes into learning to compose music, you know, you learn the principles of harmony and counterpoint before you start to write the melodies. And once the basics have become instinctual, you're freed up to break the rules, as you mentioned earlier. But I also, you know, I do understand the tension between this idea of learning in the classroom and learning in real life. And it's a subject I've mulled over since before going to get my own MFA. I think there's obviously something very valuable about being in the world and being exposed to different experiences and people that adds layers of complexity to your writing. On the other hand, uh, some famous and wise author who I now cannot remember who said this, but um, she said that everything you need to know about life to be a writer, you'll know by the time you're 15, which I thought was interesting to ponder. So maybe, do you recall any specific learning moments you experienced in the classroom, Brooke? Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm mulling over this idea of everything I needed to know to be a writer happened by the time I was 15. I, mean, I think that certainly is true in terms of how your backstory kind of informs maybe your fiction or your memoir. Mm -hmm. I, I do kind of like it. Um, you know, the, the thing I think about is that everything from those early years uh, is like fuel for the present moment. 
And I am certainly one of those people who's learned more from reading than I have from school, like on the writing front, because I didn't go to school for creative anything. You know, I did international affairs and kind of fell into publishing, not by accident, you know, certainly for a love of books, but I, I don't come out of an MFA program. I don't come out of a literature background. Um, so I got my training as a teacher of memoir on the job, you know, from editing and reading massive amounts of memoir. And, you know, if you choose to go beyond reading or, you know, like if you're if you're a critical reader, I guess I should say, like, so you're reading and you're attempting while you're at it to understand structure and characterization and scene and, and whatever other craft you want to understand, um, you're obviously going to learn so much about the craft of writing from reading the work of others. But there's a difference, of course, between reading critically and reading for pleasure. So the downside for me is that I don't read much for pleasure, uh, hardly ever, but mm -hmm. I'm lucky, you know, because pleasure is an outcome or a side effect. But literally almost everything I'm reading, I'm deconstructing as I go, you know, I kind of can't help myself. So what about you, Grant? I mean, you clearly come out of a little more of a formal writing uh, schooling background than I do. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I probably can make a fairly long list, but I'll just list a few things I learned in the classroom. I think it's good to think about this, actually, to kind of validate the experience. On a, on a very specific level, I remember sitting in my teacher, uh, the writer Michelle Carter's office, and she'd read my novel. And her, her main critique was how I tended to write a lot of sections that didn't quite connect so so the novel strands weren't working together to build momentum behind a narrative arc in the novel and she's absolutely right and that's huge to hear that as a novelist and, and to think about it while you're writing and then uh, my favorite professor of writing bob gluck he had this exercise to write a one-page novel i've probably mentioned that this before on the show but it really taught me about compression among other things and i think what was great about bob is just experiencing him as a thinker, which was just this inevitable lesson just to go to class and, and to kind of witness his thinking. And that's one benefit of being in the classroom. And then in, in general, you know, just close attention of reading others' work and really thinking about what feedback is helpful, you know, or harmful. And uh, that contributes to my own ability to self-edit and also to participate in other people's writing. And and that gets to the, to the last point. I think being in a classroom uh, you know, you're in a community of writers by virtue of being in a classroom. And so you can hopefully kind of have a, or nurture a lifelong conversation with those writers. So those are just a few benefits, um, which made it all worthwhile. Yeah, I love that. And, um, you know, we're just talking about like writers needing to know the rules, right? Grammar, sentence structure, what comprises a scene, et cetera. Um, and without those blocks, I think it can just be presumptuous to assume that you're going to be able to execute a full length book. And sometimes you need people like the mentors or teachers you were talking about to point those things out, especially in the beginning, you know, and, and all along. I mean, all the best writers out there have you know, dear relationships with their, with their editors and, you know, sometimes with their teachers. And so I think all of that is point well taken on this whole subject. Um, but I think about all of those craft building blocks, kind of like a giant container and that within that container, you have an amazing amount of space for creativity, for your own voice to emerge, 
Um, you know, and I also believe in the power of the classroom setting, but I also don't think it's right for everyone. And as you were saying, I think the right teacher can support click moments sometimes that you're obviously not going to have on your own. And I think that's true of the right editor as well. And, you know, I've written my own books and my editors have been my lifesavers pointing me to the things that just didn't land the way I intended for them to land. Uh, and good teachers are like that too, right? I mean, they give you the support and the encouragement, but also the tools. But then at the end of the day, you have to find your own way because it's your creative expression. So it, I think we're getting to the point that like this whole topic is big for conversation, but it's such an example of both and. Yeah, we're going to hear more both and uh, when we talk to Lisa Stringfellow today, uh, a marvelous teacher of writing and a marvelous writer as well. So let's take a short break and then we'll be right back to talk with Lisa. Welcome back, everybody. I'm very excited to introduce Lisa Stringfellow. Lisa writes middle grade fiction and has a not-so-secret fondness for fantasy with a dark twist, which, speaking of, she just published her debut novel, A Comb of Wishes. She's also a teacher and has taught language, arts, and technology for over 27 years. She participates in a lot of writing communities through Inked Voices, Grub Street, the Writer's Loft, and she's a member of the Brown Bookshelf's Amplify Black Stories cohort, Kid Lit in Color, Black Creators in Kid Lit, the Hashtag 22 Debuts, as well as the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and NaNoWriMo. In fact, <laughs> she wrote A Comb of Wishes during NaNoWriMo and teaches her students novel writing through our Young Writers program. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Well, Lisa, I'm very impressed by the way you're involved in, in a lot of different writing communities, and I'm impressed that you've been a teacher of writing for so long as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about your journey as a writer, you know, from when you saw yourself as a writer to actually writing and publishing A Come of Wishes. Thank you. Um, I guess it started when I was young. I was a huge reader when I was a kid in elementary school and middle school and practically lived in the library. And that led to me also discovering that I love to write and I was good at it. And in, uh, in the sense that, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I was really, um, you know, enjoyed writing poetry, enjoyed writing short stories, and my teachers um, gave me positive feedback on all of that. But after I left high school and college, I really didn't do much with my own personal writing uh, after, you know, after leaving those environments. And when I became a teacher, partway through, you know, my career, I decided to go back to school. So I was one of those people who started teaching and then decided, okay, I want to level up. And I uh, went back to graduate school and that got me thinking about writing again um, because I was reading and studying children's lit in a different way. And also some of the classes that I took on adolescent writing gave us the opportunity as adults to write. Um, and I actually wrote for a final project for um, a class on adolescent writing, a, um, a short, a chapter of a, of a novel. And so that, you know, got me thinking and I decided, you know, with some encouragement from friends like, oh, maybe I should try to start writing again and, and maybe I might like to write a novel. So I proceeded, you know, in the, my organized fashion to figure out, well, what do what do I need to know and who can help me learn what I need to know? 
And so I started looking for writing organizations and groups and, you know, signing up for workshops and classes and reading, you know, books about writing craft um, and just starting to meet people who actually were also learning and writing um, and building that community. And so through that process, I, you know, started writing a draft of my novel. And when I was uh, got to a point where I felt like I needed more help. I applied to a few mentorships that I had learned about online. There's a, several that you know run on Twitter. So I actually applied to Author Mentor Match and another mentorship called Writing in the Margins that was for BIPOC authors mm. and got accepted to both of those at the same time, actually. Mm. So I was doing both mentorships and um, but those published authors who read my manuscript and talked with me, um, gave me feedback, really helped a lot. Um, so, you know, that, again, just led to me finally querying and getting an offer of representation from my agent and eventually uh, a publishing deal. So my book, you know, started out in 2013 and just came out and it's been quite a journey, but very worth it. That's so exciting, Lisa. Congratulations. Um, you know, Grant and I were talking about that nagging, persistent, and somewhat silly question, uh, can writing be taught? <laughs> um, and you're a teacher of writing, of course. And so there's the flip side of that question, which is maybe more interesting, which is what have you learned about writing by teaching? Hmm. That is an interesting question. I think part of what I've learned from teaching is that, you know, writing is about communicating and writers, we have so much power through kind of the subtleties of language and uh, the ability to influence readers um, and how they perceive our ideas. Um, so as a teacher, one of the things I try to do is scaffold for my students um, the different steps of the process. And so I might give them, you know, exercises to help them practice a particular skill, or we might look at mentor texts um, to look at, you know, really well done examples of a particular craft move that a writer might be doing, or just lots of time to practice and to pre-write. And so thinking about, you know, that and, and those kind of instructional strategies I use with my students, those are some of the same things that help me um, as a writer to develop my own craft. Um, you know, I find that to be a writer uh, and a good writer to develop into a good writer, you really need to read lots of books in the genre that you're interested in, the age category that you're interested in, and identify those mentor texts for yourself. You know, an example of that for me is that, you know, I struggled a bit as I was writing parts of the book about how to tell the story and the POV to use. And Kelly Barnhill's book, The Girl Who Drank the Moon, was a wonderful mentor text for me because it uses an adult character as a POV for a good section of the book. And, you know, it, it was beautifully done and went on to win a Newbery Award. And so that kind of broke a rule, you know, one of those artificial rules that writers are sometimes given about, you know, how to write a story and showed me that I, you know, maybe could try something. I think I also sometimes, you know, those exercises I talk about doing writing exercises to practice particular skills with my students, I sometimes will balk at doing those myself. <laughs> but hmm. when I when I do them, um, they really 
do spark ideas and make me think about new ways of um, trying something in, in the text. Um, and some of them have even made it into my final manuscript. So wow. um, there's just a lot of benefit to some of those things that, that I've done as a teacher uh, and apply them to my own work. Yeah, I, lo I love the way you're talking about mentor texts. And I was thinking about how that is like one way or, or a different way to have a writing community in a way, because you are in conversation with other writers just through the texts. And when you mentioned that you found like two writing mentor programs, a big wow went off in my brain because it's like so many writers are searching for mentors and they're so hard to truly find and connect with another person. So I, I'm just kind of curious if you could speak to the general importance of a writing community, because you've, you're obviously a very community-oriented writer and person. And I was wondering what that community has done for you as a writer, but also how do you make a community in your classroom? Mm. Um, yeah, I do feel like it's so important. I, I, you know, the stereotype of writers is that we, you know, sit alone by ourselves at a desk and, and there's the, there's that, that we do need to, to do that sometimes, but you really get the most growth by being in conversation with other people. And so, you know, when I first started trying to learn about writing, um, I reached out through some of the organizations that I found, like SCBWI and, and found critique groups. And so, you know, I would meet with those other writers, you know, every other week and share manuscripts. And, you know, that was uh, just a special time where we were all trying to work on similar things and could give each other feedback. One of the things I took from that, and I think I've carried through my um, my time as a writer, is that a good community really is supportive of one another, and it's not transactionary. You know, it's the idea that you know if you're in a group, everyone is there to lift up and to support and to make each other better. Uh, so it's not just you know. I will do this for you if you do this for me, but it's really kind of like being those cheerleaders for each other. And so I found some, some wonderful groups um, where, you know, the relationships that are formed really have been strong and positive. Um, and there are true moments where people help each other just because we want to. And those people will, you know, cheer me on um, somebody today in my debut group, which is a huge group of over 300 people, you know, who all are publishing books in 2022. Um, but we have sub communities within that. So there's, you know, we use Slack. So there's, you know, channels for BIPOC writers and channels for middle grade writers. And someone messaged me today that they had a, a doctor's appointment and um, started talking to their uh, clinician about you know, their book first and then my book <laughs> that mm -hmm. came out because they came to my launch. And, uh, you know, and I just, again, nothing, you know, in it for that person, except that, you know, they enjoyed my work and, and wanted to share it. And those are the kind of things that I do for my writing friends as well. In my classroom, I do try to create, you know, a similar feeling. I think um, students can, you know, have different feelings about being a writer. Some don't see themselves as writers. So one of the things I love about the Young Writers Program in NaNoWriMo is that they have a goal and they get to choose what their goal is and they get to shape the story that they want to tell. And then we are all working on this collective challenge together and can be supportive and just root each other on. And when we give feedback to each other later in the process, I teach them to communicate with their peers about what they need. 
And so, you know, I talked to them about critique groups and explain what, you know, professional writers, you know, seek out friends, uh, critical friends to read and tell them, you know, when you read this, could you please give me feedback about X? Maybe it's pacing or maybe it's character development. Um, I would like to help with X, this problem. And so that kind of back and forth communication and being a support, mutual support for each other is something I try to do with the students as well as in my writing life. That's so great. I'm, I'm, I'm super impressed and wish that everybody had such a supportive group, but it sounds like you've also worked for it. So, um, so good for you. We, we want to ask you about your novel, um, obviously. Uh, can you tell us about the inspiration behind it and why it was important for you to write it? And, um, you know, also the journey part of it and, and just, you know, giving Grant and NaNoWriMo a nod. <laughs> um, if you could share a little bit about that NaNoWriMo journey, that would be awesome too. Yeah. Um, so Come With Wishes started out as a NaNoWriMo novel in 2013. It was my second attempt at it. And um, I had, you know, the previous year learned about NaNoWriMo and decided and learned about the Young Writers Program. And so uh, I decided to write with my students. And uh, as I was thinking about what kind of story I wanted to tell, what would be fun, I've always loved fantasy. And, you know, I read, you know, all of those classic fantasy books when I was a kid, you know, The Chronicles of Narnia and A Wrinkle in Time. And I had recently read a middle grade book, The Tale of Emily Winsnap by Liz Kessler, which is about a 13 year old girl who discovers she's part mermaid when she goes to swim practice and gets wet and just develops a tail. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was kind of a fun story. And I thought, okay, a mermaid story might be interesting to write. Um, and because of my own heritage uh, and my family uh, being from Barbados on my dad's side, I thought, you know, okay, setting it in the Caribbean, I've never seen a story like that in 2013. I also had read uh, recently uh, Coraline by Neil Gaiman, which is um, another wonderful book, but very different, very dark, kind of about a girl going off on this solitary adventure and being brave. And so I kind of had those two inspirations in my head as I started drafting. But one of the, I guess, inspirations was that, as I said, as I love fantasy, there were not a lot of books when I was growing up with characters that looked like me who were also in the kinds of stories that I enjoyed. A lot of times, um, if there was a character like me, it was a, you know, a gritty, uh, the new kid by Jerry Craft kind of pokes fun at this, but like the gritty, you know, urban grittiness of these <laughs> books with them, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of like the, the stereotypical black experience. And, you know, it was either that or it was um, historical fiction, which might, you know, focus on some sort of oppression or trauma. Um, so I just wanted, you know, a girl to be in a fantasy and have an adventure and, um, you know, just be a kid, um, but look like me and, and be the kind of book that I would have loved to read, have read as a kid. So that was where the inspiration came from. And um, I wrote that initial draft and I did win NaNoWriMo that year in 2013 and got to 50,000 <laughs> um, and then uh, finished the book. So it wasn't at the end at 50 thousand, but uh, finished the book in the spring the next year and then um, went through lots of revision. <laughs> so I tell my students that, um, you know, NaNoWriMo, we, we, you know, know that the mantra about banning the inner editor. And so you just have to get your words 
and your ideas out and mm-hmm. then you can make them beautiful and you can make them structured and you can do all of the other important work but you can't do those things when you're trying to come up with the ideas so i definitely um got the ideas out and then had the time to work on it for a, li- a bit to kind of get the structure and the storytelling right uh, to be what it is today i love that story and i'm curious since you mentioned that your parents are we're, we're from the Caribbean or Barbados. And uh, we began, before we got on the podcast, Lisa, I'll tell the, the listeners that we were talking about the 28 inches of snow that that uh, fell on Boston uh, a couple of weeks ago. So I'm, the Caribbean sounds quite nice in my mind right now. <laughs> and um, I don't know how much time you spent there, but I'm wondering if you could speak to how you blended your personal history to, I guess, to create the fictional world of your story. Yeah. So I didn't spend a ton of time. I think I've been to Barbados maybe a total of um, three times that I recall, like in my early childhood through my teenage years, really what I was surrounded by was like that culture here uh, where I grew up in Boston. So like my dad is was born in Barbados um, and all of his family um, emigrated kind of over most of his family, um, his close family. Uh, so my grandmother was here. So it was really all about, you know, the music and the food, especially the food. Mm. <laughs> um, and then just, you know, hearing everyone speak um, and then just the closeness and the the relationships that, you know, we had within the family. So when I, I thought about the setting of the story, um, you know, and I think about, you know, Barbados and all of the stories and my family members and, you know, visiting, I just wanted to um, make it real for the readers. And so there's a, I, I really love making it real, but also making it normal. You know, it's not something that's, you know, exoticized. It's, you know, for Keela, my main character, um, you know, she's surrounded by all these sights and sounds and smells and language and music but it's normal for her. And I think that's how it felt for me growing up. And so it's something that I feel like it blended very well and easily into that story. Yeah, that's so great. Um, and, and always of interest to us, <laughs> these mm-hmm. kind of bringing together two worlds. Uh, and another world that you bring in, of course, is your classroom. And your classroom is part of your writing community. So have your students read your novel or have you read it to them? And if so, what kind of reviews are they giving you? Yeah, wonderful reviews. And it's been so um, amazing to hear the kids talk about having read my book. When my ARCs came out, um, I donated three copies to our school library. And there was instantly a waiting list I heard from the librarians. And so every once in a while, I would see a student in the hallway and uh, they were like, I have your book today. I got it off of the waiting list. And, (laughs) and that was so fun. And they'd come up and tell me that they'd finished it and they really loved it. When my book was actually uh, released, um, I had students bring me books to sign. So um, even today in class, I had someone ask me if I could sign their book for them that they brought. And I was like, sure, let's come by after class and I'll sign it for you. So that was great. And I also, I think because they, so many of my students knew the process and the journey because I've taught so long. So I'm in a school that's fifth grade through 12th grade and I've been here for seven years. So some of the students that um, I first started talking to my, talking to about my book or in 
you know, 11th grade here. And um, I had a student who said, you know, I remember when you told us you were writing a mermaid story and it's so exciting that it's out now. And somebody told me that one of the eighth graders recalled me reading uh, an excerpt of the book when it was still in manuscript form. And, you know, I read them some feedback I'd gotten from someone and, you know, they held on to that. So mm. it's been really a great experience to, you know, know that that they are seeing me kind of fulfill this dream and they know like what it, you know, what, how people become writers and how the books become the, the ones that they see on their bookshelves, you know, but also know it's, it's a process that takes work and, and there's ups and downs, but you know, a little bit of view of, of a view into the publishing world for them. Yeah. I think it's powerful for any teacher to write with his or her students, but especially your story, you know, so that they can see how the writing goes beyond the classroom into the world. So I'm sure they saw Really learned a lot. Well, in closing, Lisa, now that you've launched your novel for all of a month, what's next for you as a writer and a teacher? Well, we are actually getting ready to revise our NaNoWriMo novels that we wrote in November. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> we're, uh, that's uh, on our plan for uh, in the coming weeks. And, um, and then for myself, I have another manuscript that I'm working on uh, that's due to my editor, um, in another month or so. And so mm. that will be my second book. Um, so it's exciting to think about that. It's a, another standalone middle grade fantasy, kind of a, another twist on a fairy tale, um, kind of a, a princess in a tower story. So I'm excited about that and getting that in the shape that I want it before I turn it into my editor. So lots of good writing going on. Yeah. Well, wonderful, Lisa. We look forward to your next book and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Congratulations, Lisa. Really wonderful to talk with you. Thank you. We will be right back with today's book trend. Today's trend has to do with epic fantasy and a story we read in Jane Friedman's Hot Sheet, which you should all subscribe to if you enjoy the trend portion of our show. Uh, Epic fantasy is specifically stories that center grand scale events and have complex story structures. Did you know that, Grant? Yeah, Game of Thrones is uh, still very fresh in my mind. and, And these stories have seen a real surge since the pandemic. And I'm guessing that's in part because people have more time to read and they're looking for escapist stories, you know, which we've, we've talked about a bit recently um, in praise of escapism, uh, which I still need more of. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, we're anticipating a new show based on Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, um, and that's going to be set thousands of years before the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So that's interesting. Um, and Hot Sheet, again, Jane Friedman told us that Amazon spent $250 million for the rights and then mm-hmm. another $250 million for the first couple of seasons. So wow, is it? Yeah, yeah. They're banking on the continued appetite for for uh, epic fantasy and escapism. And and on the book front, the epic fantasy bestseller list on Kindle saw a 58% improvement in sales rank performance over the last year. And I want to say that in addition to escapism just being on trend in general, it does seem that we have a lot of back and forth of books driving viewership of shows and viewership driving book sales again. Yeah, I mean, and I'm witnessing that in my own life because I just started watching Station Eleven, and it's a book that had already been on my to do or to read list rather for years, um, but I never got to it. Then I was at the bookstore the other day, and there it was, and I bought it because I'm watching the show. So mm. just interesting note. 
Yeah, so yes, perhaps that, that's a higher level trend too that shows can in fact be good for book sales. And I thought it was another interesting note from Hot Sheet that more than 90% of epic fantasy books are part of the series. Yeah, which means big commitments on the parts of the writers. Uh, and we'll have to do some reaching out to epic fantasy writers, Grant, to get in their heads and help us better understand this trend from the writer's perspective. But I love it. Me too. And thanks to Jane uh, for her good work on the hot sheet, which I love and look forward to. And uh, yeah, it always helps inform our, our trends. So thank you so much. And listeners, don't leave yet. Uh, you know what? I've, 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 I've recorded a few outros of late and I've botched all of them. So this one, I'm not going to botch. This is just, I'm going to announce this. This is the outro. This is the end of the show. <laughs> We're going to be back next week. Please come back on whatever platform you're listening to us on now. If you can give us a star, that would be great. If you can't give us a star, that's also fine. We just like you listening. Going out with a bang. Good job. 